Well, thank you for praying for us. As we have been gone a couple weeks, several of us went to Israel and just had a great trip. Your prayers were much appreciated, and uh, we arrived back yesterday safe and sound, so we're giving glory to the Lord. We are coming back to the book of Job after a two-week absence, so keep in mind that this book of Job is about a very righteous man who experienced some very horrible things in his life. We learn from the first two chapters that actually God was behind it, and so was Satan. God had given Satan permission to do what he did. Job's three friends don't know anything about that, as we're soon going to see, as Eric so well read from chapter 4. They're accusing, but they don't know the full story. And so from chapter Uh, 4 in the book of Job all the way to chapter 27. So the bulk of the book is about this discussion, this debate, these arguments that go back between Job and his three friends. The friends that came to comfort him, who sat for a week and said nothing, and that was the high point of their experience. And then when they opened their mouths, well, it's it's the... uh, It's the great statement of with friends like these, who needs enemies? Because they're going to be miserable comforters. There are three of them, and they go through three cycles. That is, one speaks, we start with Eliphaz, and uh, he speaks, and then Job responds, and then Bildad speaks, and Job responds, and then Zophar speaks, and Job responds, and then they go through that two more times. Except at the very end, Zophar is replaced by a pinch hitter by the name of Elihu, who is younger than all the others. By the way, it is interesting to note that all these three friends are international friends. None of them have Hebrew names. They come from a great distance. And they're all older than Job. You know what happens when older people talk to younger people? That is not always, but often they speak down to them. I had a man in another church, not this one, but it was another church in a different state. He used to come and try to correct me, and I needed correction, but he started every time like this. Now, I have been in the ministry longer than you've been alive. What do you say to that? There's no response to that, so you just take it in. But that's kind of what these guys are doing. We're going to start with the first one, and we're actually uh, going to try to gobble up four chapters this morning. So we've got to get moving. Gird up the loins of your mind and be ready to move rather quickly. We notice in uh, chapter 4 as Eric was reading that uh, Eliaphaz, a very popular name, Eli, sometimes we say, but this is Eli. It's pronounced often in Hebrew, Eli. Eliphaz from Timon. He's from a place where there is a lot of wisdom, according to Jeremiah chapter 29. And he speaks perhaps the oldest, and he, like Peter, is the leader of his little group. He's going to be the one that the Lord addresses at the very end of the book of Job to rebuke them for the many things that they had said that were wrong. So if you think of kind of a fencing Uh, situation here. You know, people with swords going at one another as they do in the Olympics, the fencing event. Well, this is the attack. Uh, First of all, the on guard in verse 1. Ellie says, suppose someone ventures a word. Would you listen? Would you be impatient? 
but we've got to say something. And, and so as he begins to talk, he first of all uh, honors him. Now, Job was uh, not only a wealthy man but, and a righteous man, but he was a very influential man who instructed many people, verse 3, strengthened feeble hands, supported those who stumbled, he strengthened those with faltering knees. This is the guy that you say to your sons, I want you to be like him. This guy is great. That's the on guard. And now comes the lunge with the sword in verse 5. But now that trouble comes your way, you fold like a cheap suit. You who stood so strong and taught so many people have no strength of your own. You're discouraged. You're dismayed. Where's your confidence? Shouldn't it be in your righteousness? And then we go and we notice in verse 5, I forgot I have the clicker, so we've got to play a little catching up to do. We already did that. And now we come to verse 7. And this is one of the key statements, the argument unfolded. Through the rest of the chapters, here it is in short compass. Now consider who has been innocent and perished. Think about it. When were the upright ever destroyed? And basically what he's saying is the innocent don't perish and the upright aren't destroyed. Now there's a ton of martyrs throughout the ages who could say something different. Like Stephen in the book of Acts, Jesus himself went to a cross, although he had not sinned. But the point he's trying to make is that if you live righteously, if you are innocent, you won't be punished. And that is generally true, but not always true. And you and I have a tendency to absolutize everything, even though the Bible doesn't do that. Verse 8, as I have observed, those who plow evil, those who sow trouble, reap it. Now, this sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, book of Galatians, right? You reap what you sow. Hosea said the same thing when he talked to Israel, when judgment was coming upon them from the Assyrians. He said, you reap what you sow, and that is true. However, sometimes innocent people suffer when they never were sowing trouble or evil. You see, you have to remember that these three friends of Job did not know what went on in chapters 1 and 2. We have an advantage. We've read those chapters. We've also read the end of the book. We kind of know what's happening here. But they had no clue of Satan's involvement. Basically, what they're promoting is something called the retribution principle or retribution theology. What is that? You reap what you sow, and it's always that way, and it never changes. The heart of their argument. Now, you'll notice it is interesting, too. He says in verse 8, as I have observed. We're going to see where Eliphaz gets his information, and here's the first thing. It's his own human opinion. It's based on human observation. What he has seen is generally true, but not always true. And I suppose you could summarize it kind of like this. Those who suffer deserve it, and those who prosper have earned it. 
I've heard even Christian people say when poor people are begging on the street, well, if they would just pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, if they would work hard, if they would do this, then they wouldn't be where they are. And sometimes that is true, but it's not always true. We need to have more compassion for those who don't have as much as we do, lest we become like Job, lose it all, and then hope someone on the street doesn't point a finger at us and say, well, if they'd only work harder, they wouldn't be where they are. You see, they didn't see what God was doing behind the scenes. The reason for this disaster is your own sin. The reason behind the ruin is your sin. And so, as people use this retribution principle without any mercy, and just apply it to everyone who's having a rough time, grace is offended and mercy weeps. Because there's more to the story than what you often see. Man judges by outward appearance, but God judges on the heart. When will we learn that? Well, the book of Job is there to help us understand, to help us embrace, and hopefully we will. Now, as we go on, and we're not going to read every portion in these four chapters, time fails us, but I wish we could, and Eric did such a great job. This is poetry. This is fantastic poetry. And when well-read is moving all by itself, you can read these four chapters in about ten minutes. I told you that Eliaphaz got his information by observation, but that was the, wasn't the only place. He also got it by mystic um, uh, visitation, a, a spirit's revelation. This is creepy and weird. A word was secret, secretly brought to me, he says in verse 12. My ears caught a whisper amidst disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on people. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake, and a spirit glided past my face. I tell you, I am out of the room then and there. I'm done with this business. A form stood before me, and I heard a hushed voice say, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man, even a strong one, be more pure than his maker? By the way, what's the answer to that question? No. And here we learn that often the theology and the counsel of the three friends is good. It's not what they say that's bad. It's what they don't know. And they'll often say the right thing but apply it to the wrong situation, to the wrong person, as we're going to see throughout this book. You're going to find a lot of very good theology in what the three friends say but you've got to sift through a lot. And you've got to understand the context. So he says in verse 18, if God places no trust in his friend, his servants, if God charges even angels with error, what do you think he does with human beings? The individuals who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are dust. How were we created? Out of the dust of the ground, our foundations, dust. And we're crushed like a moth, and we perish, verse 20, there's that word again, forever, and the cords of our tent 
are taken down. That doesn't necessarily mean temporary. We think of a tent as being a temporary place. In this day, it was a permanent home, except that they had to often move that permanent home. They stayed in the same tent, but they would pull up their cords and go somewhere else when necessity uh, warranted it. And now he's simply saying that there are those people, human beings, who aren't going to be around forever, and they're fragile, and they often have to change and pull up their tent. He says in chapter 5, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. So what Eliphaz is basically doing is building his argument and basing his reason on the retribution principle that you reap what you sow. Job, you've, you've had catastrophe come upon you. There must be a reason, especially for something so bad, to lose your possessions and lose your family and now lose your health. What have you done? And don't tell me nothing because God doesn't punish the innocent. And so he calls him now a fool. Resentment kills like a fool. Envy slays the simple. I myself have seen it. Here's observation again. I've seen a fool taking root. (laughs) And he's basically saying in not really subtle terms, and I'm watching it happen right now. Job, you're acting like a fool. Suddenly his house is cursed, and his children are far from safety. Can you believe the insensitivity of Eli to say at this moment, yeah, the fools, they lose their kids. Oh, you lost yours? Point well taken. (laughs) I can remember a pastor who told me that he was serving in a church years ago, and he lost his son. In the midst of that church, there were a lot of battles going on. Battles at the board level. There were quite a few people in the church who were upset with the pastor. And when he lost his son, someone in the church went up to him and said, this is what you deserve. (laughs) People wouldn't do something like that, would they? Oh, really? I mean, maybe you're not that bold. You just say it sometimes behind the scenes. That's exactly what Ellie is saying here. His children are far from safety, that is the fool. His house is cursed. His children are crushed. Oh, by the way, that's just what happened to you the other day. And then the hungry come in and take his harvest. Still dealing with this retribution principle, he says something interesting in chapter 5. Hardship doesn't just spring up from the soil. And trouble doesn't sprout from the ground. That is, trouble doesn't just appear out of nowhere. There has to be a reason for it. And here's the reason. It's the humanity of man. You've heard this verse out of Job, haven't you? Man is born to trouble like the sparks fly upward. And we often take it out of context. The point he's making is this. Man is the source of trouble. It is inbred in us, and your trouble has come from you. Just as certain as striking iron and the f- sending the, farks, the sparks flying upward, so it is true with you, Job. And so he gives him a recommendation. Why don't you pray? This is verse 8. This is really good stuff right here. Verse 8 through, through verse uh, um, 12, really good stuff. 
I would appeal to God. I'd lay my cause before him. He performs wonders and miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain. He sends water. He lifts up those who are mourning. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands never achieve success. All of these things are true. This is wonderful theology. But he's building up to something that is so unfortunate and popular in our day. And we often call it the health and wealth theology. Look at verse 17. Blessed is the man, the one whom God corrects. So don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. By the way, that's taken right out of Hebrews chapter 12, which is a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3 that says the Lord disciplines all his children. He corrects everyone he loves, and no one misses the correction of God. So it's blessed to be corrected by God, and that is true. Verse 18 He wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands heal. He talks about being delivered from famine and calamity. And notice verse 21. You will be protected from the lash of the tongue. Verse 22. You will laugh at destruction and famine when you're right with God. And he has healed you of your sin. The implication is just right out in, in front of Job. You will have a covenant with the stones and the wild animals will be at peace with you. Verse 24, and you will know that your tent is secure. Your tent that's being pulled up before, he mentioned uh, your tent being removed. Now it's going to be secure. And your children, verse 25, your children will be many when you respond properly to the discipline of the Lord. Paul Tournier, a Swiss psychologist and strong Christian, said that many people in Christianity are longing for a religion that they can contain and explain. A religion that they can grasp that's easy to follow without mystery and unsolvable problems. A religion where God spares us from strife and suffering of uncertainty and struggle. In short, a religion without a cross. That's very popular. And that's exactly what Ellie is talking about. Health and wealth theology. Now, in both chapters, chapter 4 and 5, he pulls out some good theology, but he's not telling us the whole story. The reformers used to talk about a, a Latin phrase, the analogia scriptura, that meant deal with the whole Bible, the whole analogy of Scripture. That is, compare Scripture with Scripture, leave nothing undone, no stone unturned, and make sure that you take all of the theology and not just rip some of it out of its context. That's what the health and wealth theology does. It makes it sound like if you follow God, all will be blessed. And they were totally ignorant of Satan's involvement in this whole situation. So look at the end of the chapter. We have examined this. Who's the we? The three. We've examined this, and this is true, and it applies to you. 
So hear what we've said. Listen to our words. Apply it to yourself. Job, this is the way to get out of the situation. Now we know that this is bad counsel because when you come to the end of the book, God is going to rebuke all of these guys starting with Eliphaz. And although they say some good things, they misapply it to Job. So he talks about this Retribution theology, and he talks about this health and wealth theology, and most of us have been infected by these deviant forms of Bible teaching with a little truth, ignoring other portions of Scripture. That's why we're going through the book of Job, to put balance to these false teachings. Is there some truth there? Yes. You reap what you sow. Is there some truth that you follow God and he will bless you and prosper you? Yes. But he never promised that he would withhold strife and challenge and difficulty. Which causes us to say, how come when we have a problem we say, why me? You ever said that? Why me? Why not you? Are you a believer? (laughs) Then you're in it. You're going to be in it. If you haven't been, you will be. And it may happen soon. And I'm not saying you take delight in it. I'm not saying that you even just uh, take on a martyr's complex and make everyone around you feel miserable. What I'm saying is expect it. Because it's coming. Now we jump to Job's response. That's the rebuke. And Job responds in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. His response is rather sharp. Again, if we're thinking of fencing, the word pare is the defensive move when someone thrusts at you to take your sword and push their sword off to the side so that they don't strike you. But when they do, you are to say, touche. You heard that word? Touche. Touche means you struck a good blow. I acknowledge that I was hit. Sometimes in a debate or an argument, it means that the counter-argument is worthy and needs to be acknowledged. And so Job says in chapter 6 and verse 2, If only my anguish could be weighed and my misery placed on the scales. Do you know that suffering is intense? Some of you are going through this suffering right now. You know how intense it is. It's heavy. Suffering has a weight to it that you cannot throw off. And what these guys don't understand is that they have come to comfort Job, but they do so by simply throwing Bible verses taken out of context at Job to make him feel better. Have you ever done that? Someone's suffering, so you just tell them, buck up, God is good. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You're not practicing that right now. (laughs) And we don't understand the weight. We don't sympathize. We try to identify. I I can remember as a young pastor going to visit people in the hospital and, and someone had gone through a horrible surgery. I was in my 20s and I said, I know how you feel. And the person said to me, no, you don't. (laughs) Touche. They were right. No, I didn't. 
But now after a few years, I've experienced some of that suffering. And sometimes I can say, I know how you feel. Totally different. Someone said sympathy is when you take someone else's pain into your heart. That's sympathy. Job said, my anguish would outweigh the sands of the sea, verse 3. No wonder my words seem impetuous. And then in verse 4, look at this. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. In verse 20, he says, I'm God's target. He's been shooting his arrows at me and they've been hitting. I read in the book of Proverbs or in the book of Psalms how the arrows of the Almighty strike the wicked. But now Job is saying, His arrows have hit me and I drink in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. They did not comprehend the depths of his sorrow. And it seems even worse when you know that God allows it. Now, in the end, it's the only thing that will bring you comfort because if God is not sovereign over our problems, if this is all just a crapshoot, if this is all just random suffering and you never know when your number's coming up, how horrible that would be. But if you understand there's purpose behind it, like Christ's suffering on the cross, then you can begin to battle with it. I was talking to a good friend recently who indeed suffers much like Job. And they said, sometimes the worst time is the nighttime. And you just count the minutes. There's one past. And then there's another past. And you count the minutes until dawn. Remember that old spiritual, no one knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. There's a lot of truth in that. And that's what Job is trying to get across to his three friends. I won't read it, but in verse 8 through verse 10, he talks about the fact that he basically wishes that God would kill him. And he hopes he dies before he dishonors the name. That's verse 10. This would be my joy, that I would die before I deny the words of the Holy One. He says, it's hopeless, verse 11. Why should I hope? Why should I be patient? Do I have the strength of a stone? Is my flesh bronze? He's in utter despair. And then he addresses his friends. Look at verse 14. He says, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of of the Almighty. This is one of those Hebrew verses that ex- is extremely challenging. It could be taken in two different ways. Both actually reflect a lot of truth. A despairing man should have devotion of his friends, not the attack of his friends, even though he forsakes the Almighty. Now, Job is not forsaking the Almighty, but that's what his friends are accusing him of. And Job is basically saying, even if one of your friends blows it, be there to be their friend. You don't set a, send a prophet on hospital visitation whose main purpose is to correct the person in the bed and help them find out the sin that brought them to the hospital. <laughs> Send a prophet on hospital visitation, and you've got Job's three friends. 
It's not that you maybe shouldn't look into that. It's not that that couldn't be part of it. But Job says you need to have the devotion of your friends. That's what a real friend is. Someone who sticks closer than a brother. Here's another way to translate it, though. Anyone who withholds, withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Now it's turned around a little bit. If you don't show kindness to your friends in their time of need, you don't fear God. Job is going to call these guys miserable comforters. In fact, in verse 15, he says, My brothers are about as undependable as intermittent streams, as streams that overflow. They overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but they stop flowing in the dry season. You can't trust them. Do you have some friends that cannot be trusted? It's hard to call them friends. But the ones who come when you're in your dry season, and when your heart is overflowing with grief, that indeed is a true friend. And so Job says in verse 21, Now you too, you have proved to be of no help to me. The religion that wants pat, pat answers for profound problems a religion that wants to explain everything. And frankly, that is where evangelical Christianity has been for a long time. For a long time, we've had the Bible answer man who can answer any question you have and give you all the details about every portion of Scripture. And I say that is so wrong. Not that there aren't many answers, but where's the mystery? And if God is God, and he is, and we are human, and we are, then there's a ton of mystery that you and I have to live with. Thus says the book of Job. We don't know what we don't know. And we answer in part. We answer confidently, even though we observe in part. We want a religion that's always clear and Always consistent, a system that we can control, questions that we can answer. And Job says, <laughs> that's not following God. So these people have proven to be no help whatsoever to Job. We quickly go to chapter 7, and Job says, my life is spinning out of control. It's like a weaver shuttle. It's not only spinning fast, but it is out of control. And there's no hope. The images that are used in Scripture to talk about our life and how brief it is, it's like a vapor that appears for a little while and then what? Vanishes away. Have you ever stood and watched a weaver working and watched the shuttle move with unbelievable speed? That's what our life is like. It's short and soon gone. He talks about anguish of spirit in verse 11. I'm going to complain in bitterness of soul. And did you know it's okay to do that? When you're not attacking the character of God and you're still seeking for answers and help from God, it's okay to express the bitterness that you're battling with and the depression that you feel, the despair. Look at what he says in verse 20. Have I become a burden to you? Why have you made me your target? Did you know that Job never gets answers to all these questions? 
They're tough ones. But God doesn't give him all the answers. Why don't you just pardon my sin if there is an offense? Forgive me for what I've done and let's go on. But Job says there's nothing I can point to. Job's not saying he's a perfect man. He's just saying that there's no sin in my life that would cause this kind of reaction from God. And so he is totally confounded. And he doesn't quite know what to do. And his friends come alongside and say, let me throw some Bible verses at you to make you feel even more miserable. Now, the Bible is what we need in our times of trouble. I'm just saying the insensitivity of a so-called friend is appalling in our church people, including me. We are often so insensitive. And the book of Job is not just to show us that sometimes good people suffer, but sometimes good people try to come along the suffering and make their suffering worse. That's what the book of Job tells us. So you don't correct a wounded soul with poor theology. You don't fix a broken heart with mere logic. You let the pain of that person come into your soul. And you weep with those who weep. That's what the New Testament says. And that's Bible. And I dare say you're going to get a chance to do that this week. I wonder if you'll... React like one of Job's three friends. The book of Job teaches us several things. It teaches us that very terrible things happen to very good, innocent people. I don't mean that Job is innocent in the sense of sinless. I mean he did nothing to deserve this, and God is the one who said that. Very horrible things happen to very good people. Also, we need to understand that we are to bring our feelings and our fears and our frustrations to God. He will lift us up. He will give us the answers we need to cope, although the answers may not totally explain the situation. And I've heard it said that once we get to heaven, then we'll know it all. I do believe we'll know much more than we know now, but I'm not convinced we'll know it all because, again, we'd have to be God to know it all. I don't know that we'll even get all the answers, but when we get to heaven and see Jesus, that will be answer enough. And did you know that we have Jesus right now? We have Jesus right now. One time a poor man came to his dinner, and he had little uh, to eat. There was a little bread and some water and, and he'd gone through a lot of suffering and he bowed his head and gave thanks to God and he said, I am so blessed. I have all of this in Jesus too. <laughs> when you put Jesus in the equation, it looks pretty good. If you just look at the bread, if you just look at the water, if you look at what you don't have, then th things look pretty sparse. But Jesus too? And then remember this, be kind to everyone, for everyone's having a rough time. Everyone. And they need your friendship, and they need your sympathy, and they need your love, and maybe tomorrow they'll be giving sympathy to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we quickly go through these chapters, we understand that we can be so misguided and well-intended that we can use Scripture and theology and abuse it in such a way that we are more of a problem than a help. 
that we add a greater burden on people instead of lifting their burdens like we are commanded to do. So Lord, teach us how to be the church. Teach us how to be like Jesus, who was a friend who would stick closer than a brother. Always there to encourage and help. And Lord, for the people in our congregation who are suffering, and I don't mean just some of the normal suffering stuff, but I mean some of the deep suffering stuff that never seems to go away, and they wake up every morning and go to bed every night with the same heavy burden on their soul. Oh Lord, teach us how to lift their burden and to help until, Lord, you deliver them finally, if not in this life, in the one that is to come. For all who follow Jesus will be blessed and forgiven and forever strong in Christ. And God's people said, Amen.